Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. In the meantime, though, I want to talk about Canada's energy future in the short term. And we talked earlier about, you know, this idea of, you know, further out targets uh, about an energy transition, you know, 20, 30 years from now. Look, the reality is, is that, and certainly in the short term, once uh, the economy rebounds, we're going to see a rebound in oil demand. Production's going to increase. So it, it's certainly something we need to ensure that we're front and center in. Now, with regard to our capacity to meet international demands, you know, it seems as though we've missed an opportunity to get the Keystone XL pipeline and, and open up the Gulf Coast for us. We are making progress on Trans Mountain, the expansion project to the West Coast. But what do we need now? In, in terms of maybe a fallback. We got line three that's progressing into the United States. So there's been some talk about maybe some other pipeline ideas. I know some people have speculated maybe Energy East makes sense again. What about a different project that was shelved? Is it time maybe to have a conversation again about the Northern Gateway Pipeline? And that certainly ran into some political and legal obstacles. But maybe it's time to, to revisit that. Uh, that's certainly what our next guest Believe. So it was a really interesting op-ed over the weekend in the National Post making this argument. Joining us on the line is David Knight-Lake, chairman of the ESG Working Group of the province and CEO of the Invest Alberta Corporation. David, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Yeah, great to be here, Rob. Yeah, look, there, there's a lot of talk about, you know, pipeline capacity, what's going to be necessary over the next five or 10 or 20 years. What does the focus need to be right now in your view? You know, Rob, I think it's probably three things. First is, you know, just at the uh, top of the hour there, you were talking about, you know, what's happening with COVID. And I think my focus has been what happens next economically. Right. And this is one of these obvious projects sitting on the shelf that immediately puts people to work, helps jobs, helps the economy. But it also pays the economy back for 40 years when you create economic access for Canada to Asian markets in particular, you create something that continues to expand the economy. And and I think the second thing is it helps assert Canadian sovereignty. We've had a lesson in KXL. Uh, we potentially have a lesson in, um, you know, uh, Gretchen Whitmer and Line 5. You mentioned Line 3. Mm-hmm. It'd be a huge science lesson for the East if uh, Line 5 got shut down. You know, there'd be a lot of interest in getting Energy East back. But But this is a problem, right? We shouldn't be waiting for decisions made by politicians in other countries to shape our sovereignty or our economic destiny. And Northern Gateway is an opportunity to shape our own destiny. And the, the final thing is it's got an extraordinary economic opportunity for us to add 525,000 barrels a day straight to Asia, make up, you know, uh, 65% of what would have been in KXL. And I, I still believe KXL could very well come back. I know 21 attorneys general and and Democratic senators are asking the president to reinstate it. 
So we'll see where that goes. But in the, in the meantime, I think the lesson for Canada is let's build our own infrastructure and go to markets directly ourselves instead of relying on the Americans. Okay. What about, you know, Trans Mountain? And, and I guess, you know, originally when, when um, <clears throat> Northern Gateway was proposed and approved, you know, Trans Mountain wasn't at that point yet. So now that Trans Mountain is approved, is getting closer to completion, how does that affect or how does that change the, the case for Northern Gateway? Well, I think what happened, if you look back at what was happening in 2016, we had we had a couple million barrels worth of approved pipelines that included Energy East, Northern Gateway, Trans Mountain. Trans Mountain went through the federal acquisition process, and and what happened was you had this, um, you know, you had you had a, a federal liberal party that was concerned about the environment and um, thought that KXL would be approved, and so now KXLs come off. And it's time for them to take uh, Northern Gateway off the shelf and put it back into into play. Is there still a need for it? Um, you know, there are those who believe that between the pipelines that are in operation now, plus Trans Mountain, plus Line 3, that that will look after our capacity needs. What's your sense? No, absolutely not. We, we've got, uh, you know, the second Northern Gateway was built, it would be entirely subscribed. Um, there's not a chance that, that we've remotely come close to fulfilling our capacity. We could we could expand another 40 to 50 percent, and all those barrels would be immediately subscribed. And the importance of exporting abroad, because, you know, I think some people like the idea of Energy East, because maybe we could supply Eastern Canada, you know, we could export to other destinations in the United States. Um, but the, the ability to export abroad and export to Asia in particular, talk about why that there's such a strong economic case for that. Well, look, there's a huge economic case because it's the fastest-growing energy demand region in the world. No one's even close. It's also got a very strong environmental case. The lion's share of all global emissions now are coming from Asia as the U.S. has reduced its emissions by 900 megatons and uh, Europe has reduced theirs by almost 800 megatons. Canada is actually lagging. So for all the talk, we've done almost nothing to reduce our emissions. In 15 years, we've only reduced our emissions by 14 megatons. So we've got to we've got to do more than talk. We've got to have action. And if you look at the way that energy works in the world, the most carbon intensive energy that's being used in Asia is thermal coal. And uh, you know our oil burns at fifty uh, percent, or our thermal coal burns at fifty percent higher carbon intensity than the same unit of energy from our oil. Hundred percent higher carbon intensity than the same unit of energy from our gas. Asia's explosion of global emissions is happening because they have to rely on the energy they can get access to, which is currently thermal coal. And that's what's been driving emissions growth globally for the last decade. And Canada is sitting on resources that could immediately help alleviate the total carbon emissions in the planet by shipping our lower carbon intensity oil and gas at scale. And China and India will take everything we give them. So there's an enormous uh, environmental argument between uh, as to why Canada should be developing its energy resources and shipping them to the places that need them to replace higher carbon intensity energy they're relying on. We currently have what, what I think is really arbitrary. I mean, you know, the the idea that we have a stronger review process is one thing, but then to say on top of that we need a West Coast tanker ban never made much sense, but that is a, an obstacle at the moment to this kind of approach. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it is, and it's unscientific, it's, and it's not environmental. You know, for the for Canada to be paying $3 billion a year for Saudi tankers to park on our East Coast with absolutely no specific environmental review, but to specifically and only ban tankers from the one part of the coast that could take our LNG out to Asia 
is just, it's not scientific, it's not environmental, it's just gratuitous, and it needs to change. And it will change under federal review the same way that it did under TMX with Indigenous consultations and tanker reviews. We can't, I, I believe Canada's got the capacity to find the best practices and implement them on the west, upper west coast for tanker traffic the same way hundreds of other com- countries do, the same way that we've done for the east coast and for the lower west coast. I, I believe that that is a law that can easily be accommodated, that can easily accommodate the economic and environmental realities that Northern Gateway would create for the country. And does it have to be Northern Gateway specifically? I mean, you know, there, there is a proposal for um, what's known as the Eagle Spirit Pipeline to the West Coast, and that's got a lot of yeah. indigenous backing. Um, so maybe maybe there's still some political baggage with Northern Gateway, but, you know, could it be uh, maybe a different project to the West Coast? Sure, Rob. Yeah, anything. Look, I, I believe Canada can build things again. I think over the last five, six years, we've gotten a reputation as a country that can't get big projects built or dream big things and fund them. And I think that we can. I think we have to uh, get the politics out of the front end of a lot of that thinking and planning. And I believe there's room for multiple uh, infrastructure projects that help Canada become more sovereign, get act, get its products out to a world that's desperate for those products. And by the way, our, our energy is the cleanest. It's the best. It's the highest quality. It's the lowest cost landed supply of LNG, for instance, to... China. So, so there's room for hundreds of good projects, including many different pipeline opportunities. I love the idea that, that you know, with the indigenous par- participation to see First Nations benefiting from the infrastructure that traverses their land. I think that's the right thing. I think it's great for the country. And I think it's also great for Canada's soft power and strategic relevance in the world that we start to build these things again. We'll leave it there. As mentioned, uh, your op-ed from the weekend, it's up at nationalpost.com. And yeah, a conversation that uh, we certainly should be having as a province and as a country. David, thank you so much for joining us here this afternoon. Really appreciate this. Hey, thanks, Laura. Take care. All the best. You as well. That is David Knight-Legge, is chair of the ESG Working Group for the province, uh, CEO of Invest Alberta Corporation. Uh, so says, yeah, we, we definitely need uh, another project in the mix. And Northern Gateway would be one worth revisiting or maybe something, you know, akin to the Eagle Spear pipeline. But yeah, more capacity off of the West Coast to me makes a lot more sense than trying to, you know, go all the way to the East Coast, for example. But yeah, conversation uh, worth having. At the top in this hour, though, really interesting new study looking at uh, the the changes happening in the uh, energy sector and what it's going to mean for the uh, oil and gas industry. And so this is very much uh, an area of concern here in Alberta, but there there are national implications to this. Uh, This is a report from uh, TD Economics uh, that finds that Canada's uh, push toward net zero, this green transition, is going to have a severe impact on those who work in the energy industry. Up to three quarters of those who work in oil and gas could be displaced by this push to net zero. This report calls on uh, governments to to acknowledge this uh, and for governments to come up with a plan to deal with this, to help workers transition uh, to avoid some, some really bad economic fallout. You can read this report for yourself, by the way, at economics.td.com. But joining us to talk more about it is one of the authors of this report. Uh, he's a, a managing director and a senior economist uh, with TD Economics. Uh, Francis Fong is his name. Francis, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. 
Thanks for having me, Rob. Yeah, so th- this is a pretty big issue, right? I mean, uh, obviously, there's an environmental impulse for making some of these changes, and I suppose people can can uh, debate uh, all of that, but there's a very real impact here. So how do we go about, and how did you go about in this study, measuring just what that impact might be? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a great question. I mean, essentially, you know, when we talk about this clean energy transition and the, the move to a low-carbon economy, shift to net zero, whatever you want to call it, you know, I think it's, it's important to understand that it's, it's something that needs to happen if we're going to avoid the worst outcomes of climate change. But, you know, one of the things I wanted to highlight was in that process, this kind of shocking number of 450,000 workers that could be displaced, you know, the clean energy transition also kind of represents an actually a really important and enormous opportunity for Canada to leverage our position as an energy country and actually take a leadership role uh, in the move to a low-carbon economy. So, But, you know, in doing so, we just shouldn't be forgetting that as we as we move towards this low-carbon economy, there's going to be real impacts on workers, and that transition's not going to be smooth for many. So essentially what we did was we looked at, well, what does what does a transition to net zero look like in terms of consumption of oil and gas? And basically energy researchers out there uh, that are forecasting these kinds of things, they estimate that in North America alone, we could see oil and gas consumption fall by as much as 40 to 50%. So if we see Basically, we're all shifting to, you know, electric vehicles. We stop burning natural gas in our homes, like we have electric stoves and whatnot. You know, what does that mean for, for, for production if consumption is falling that low? And so basically, you look at everything from our, you know, from, uh, well, what share of, of, uh, of oil, oil and gas production in North America is Canada going to have within 30 years? What is the capital to labor ratio going to look like? And that's how we landed on this 450,000 number. Uh, so yeah, it's interesting because as you as you point out and as you allude to that that the demand for oil and gas is not going to go away altogether, but but it does it likely entails a, a pretty significant drop. So how much drop in production would we anticipate in this scenario? Yeah, I, I think similarly, just uh, going back to that, that figure about uh, 40 to 50% uh, consumption decline, you know, I think production is likely going to fall similarly alongside that. And, and you highlight the, 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 the importance of oil and gas even down the line. I think that's something that gets, you know, missed quite a lot when we talk about the clean energy transition in that the likelihood that oil and gas kind of maintains a position uh, in a clean energy economy, uh, whatever role that is, be it's still going to have a role but that role rob is going to be really dependent on how well we leverage technology to sequester emissions so you know take a you know take a you know a, a natural gas uh, field you know there's emissions everywhere from flaring to you know uh, to you know methane emissions fugitive methane trailing ponds from oil sands uh, from oil sands productions so really there is still going to be some demand for oil and gas because it's going to be really, really difficult for us to completely remove our dependence uh, on oil and gas. Keep in mind, oil and gas represents still two-thirds of our primary energy demand in this country. So completely, uh, even within 30 years, it's still going to be a very challenging uh, prospect. That being said, if we want it to, to kind of stay, even to a smaller degree, we're still going to have to invest quite a lot in things like carbon capture uh, utilization and storage technologies to ensure that the emissions intensity of the sector is low enough that it still aligns with our climate, uh, our, our climate change targets. 
There does seem to be a, a belief, and, and the report addresses it, that as we switch from one form of energy to another, that will just mean a, a transition for those who work in energy. Those who work in, in oil and gas can simply move in, into a different uh, sector of the energy economy. But it's not that simple, is it? That's right. And, and I mean, just to highlight just some of the findings of, of other researchers, and, you know, as we move to a clean energy economy, uh, you know, the expectation is actually that the energy sector grows. Even among the labor market, it's going to form a larger share of the labor market than in the past, simply because if we want to electrify everything, if we want to move to clean fuels, we're going to have to build a tremendous amount of new stuff, new infrastructure. We're going to need to build transmission lines. If we want a a, a kind of budding hydrogen industry, we might need to build new pipelines. And in fact, part of that, uh, you know, sets up Alberta really, really well, simply because the existing skill set is already there to help facilitate that construction and that transition. Um, but here's, here's the thing. We looked at basically the manufacturing sector of the 1990s and the 2000s. You know, the economic dogma at that time is that despite things like the rise of globalization, the rise of free trade, you know, these industries, they might get impacted, but, you know, workers will just transition. They'll, they'll adjust. They'll move to where the jobs are. Uh, they'll retrain if they have to, and it'll be fine. That was the economic dogma at the time, and we've learned since then that that really didn't work out quite a lot. You know, we saw whole communities get carved out as a consequence of those economic shifts, those, those very significant economic shifts. And this clean energy transition mirrors that experience very, very closely. We're looking down the barrel of a very similar kind of economic shift and the potential uh, for for small communities that are dependent on these sectors to get carved out similarly uh, is, is, is there. And so we shouldn't ignore the potential for that. So one of the recommendations in our report was that to, to the extent that governments are going to be investing in clean energy developments, whether that's, you know, building, you know, solar farms or, you know, wind turbines or what have you, uh, to focus those investments on those communities that are going to get that are going to bear the brunt of the impact of the clean energy transition. I mean, it's worth noting that oil and gas only represents, you know, what one some one and a half percent of our labor force nationwide. But go to Cold Lake, go to the Athabasca region. It's something like 25 to nearly a third of the labor force that's dependent on that sector. So if those workers are going to get impacted, well, you know, why don't we focus those investments where they'll need them most? Well, yeah, that makes sense. What about in terms of individuals, right? So, I mean, we're talking about a time frame here, you know, 20 to 30 years, but still, this represents hundreds of thousands of of workers potentially displaced by all of this. So what about on an individual basis? Yeah, no, definitely. And I think that's that's really the, the, the impact that we're hoping to highlight here. You know, I, I think one of the challenges here that we're, that we're trying to all figure out in this, you know, agree or not that this transition is, is, is important or critical or whatever, you know, if we take it for granted that this transition has to happen, what we're all trying to navigate right now is, well, what is everyone's role? What's the federal government's role in, in all this? What's the provincial government's role in all this? Industry itself. And of course, the worker. You know, I think that's kind of one of the, the, the things that we try to do in our report is try to carve out what everybody's role is, is to say, well, you know, there's no doubt about it that with, you know, training and education being the primary jurisdiction of the provinces, that the province will have to step up in terms of making sure that, that 
retraining and upskilling programming is actually effective, actually aligns with what industry needs uh, in terms of the skills that will be required in the clean energy jobs of the future. It's going to be the role of the federal government to maybe provide that national framework and figure out what those skills are by working with industry itself. Industry, uh, for their part, they're going to have to come to the table more strongly with, okay, well, here's what we think the clean energy transition is going to look like. Here's the investment we're thinking about. Here's the transitions we're thinking about. And here are those jobs and skills that, that are going to be required to actually make that a reality. And then all of that kind of funnels down to the individual worker to say, okay, well, you know, if I take it for granted that I'm going to have to make this transition, you know, how do I actually do that? And, you know, in fact, we've already seen this in Alberta, you know, as, as part of the, the transition or the phase out of coal, there were many, many, or many, many small communities that were impacted by this transition. And so, you know, the concerns that were raised at that time, that, that's a lesson learned for us uh, about the transition that we're expecting for the oil and gas, uh, for the oil and gas sector. You know, things like, well, how do I afford retraining? How do I, how do I afford the time off? What if I have to move? I can't necessarily move. I have kids or I have parents to take care of, what have you. Um, what if I'm an older worker? What about my pension? How do I know that retraining is actually going to get me the job down the line? All of these concerns, actually, people are aware of. So I, I think there's, there's already kind of a, a playbook that we can leverage uh, to make this as smooth as possible for people that, that are going to get impacted down the line. Well, and, and, and that's the thing, right? Down the line, I mean, you know, we sort of think of this as, you know, far off, uh, you know, 2050 targets. That, that seems a long way out. But do we need to start dealing with this now? Oh, yeah. You know what, Rob? Thank you for correcting me because you are absolutely, absolutely right on the money there. I mean, the reality is that we have a pretty aggressive target for emissions reductions pretty soon. Even by 2030, we're hoping to see a 32 to 40 percent reduction in greenhouse gas emissions. And a lot of those emissions reductions are going to come from uh, the these carbon intensive industries, whether that be oil and gas or, or, or manufacturing or what have you. So we can get some of the way there by leveraging new technology like carbon capture and, and, and things of that nature. But the reality is that this transition is, is already starting. We're already starting to see that now. Uh, so the reality, like, it's unfortunate, but you know, we we really needed to be having this conversation five, ten years ago uh, when you know climate change was was maybe less uh, readily on the lips of, of policymakers. But but at the time, if we had this framework now, we really wouldn't be we we really wouldn't be fretting about it as much as we are today. Some important points. Again, people can read this report for themselves. It's up at economics.td.com. Francis, thanks so much for making some time for us here today. Really appreciate this. Thanks for having me, Rob. All right. All the best. Uh, that is uh, Francis Fong. He is a managing director and a senior economist at TD Economics, co-author of this report, uh, looking at the impact of the so-called green transition and how it's going to hit those that work in the energy sector. And that needs to be addressed. We're going to go down this path. And look, we can debate whether we need to. But if we're going to go down this path, and certainly governments are telling us that we need to, then they also need to tell us how they're going to address this side of it. So I think as our guest points out, to simply say it's all going to sort itself out, it's all going to be fine, that's not going to cut it. So how does Alberta need to respond to what's been a pretty alarming increase in the number of variant COVID-19 cases? And we've seen uh, the B117 variant surge and uh, disturbingly over the weekend as well. We heard about more cases of the P1 variant. We are going to hear today from Premier Jason Kenney. He's going to join the Chief Medical Officer of Health at 3.30 today. 
uh, for the latest COVID update. And this comes off the heels of what we understand was a, a cabinet emergency management committee meeting this afternoon to decide what steps, if any, to take at this point. We'll find out for sure at 3.30. As you probably know, other jurisdictions, BC, Ontario notably, uh, have brought in some some new health measures. In fact, today, just in uh, Ontario, they announced that schools in Toronto uh, are going to be closing for the time being. So it'll be interesting to see what Alberta does from here. Um, obviously, the, the, this is having an impact. We were seeing in Alberta a steady decrease in the number of hospitalizations, and that decrease stopped some weeks ago. And things have been creeping back up. You know, it was interesting over the weekend as we we're getting updates uh, on social media from the Chief Medical Officer of Health, we we're being told that hospitalizations were holding steady. But hospitalizations are actually up from Thursday to Monday. And uh, even more worrying, the uh, number of people in ICU is, is up about 29% from Thursday to Monday. Now at, I think, uh, 76 in ICU. And the numbers don't tell the whole story about age, about disease severity, but just also what needs to be done in an emergency room setting when you're dealing with these cases. You know, car crash victims don't require isolation, don't require layers of PPE. When you're dealing with COVID patients, and in particular a situation where you don't know if you're dealing with a more contagious variant, it really affects the resources you have and the capacity you have in a hospital situation. So joining us to talk a bit more about uh, that side of it and what the concern is uh, at this point here in Alberta, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Dr. Joe Vipon is an ER doctor uh, here in Calgary. Uh, Dr. Vipon, thanks for joining us here this afternoon. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me on. And, and before we get right into it, I just want to say the views I present are mine alone and not those of Alberta Health Services or the Department of Emergency Medicine at the University of Calgary. All right. And yeah, and, and worth noting, and I appreciate that. Um, so just in terms of, of resources, and I want to give you a chance to elaborate on that, because, you know, maybe the numbers don't tell the whole story in terms of what it means uh, in an ER setting, what it means for having patients in ICU when you're dealing with a situation like we're dealing with now. Yeah, I mean, I think that one of the things that I found frustrating throughout the pandemic is that the framing by the government that the the main objective of their COVID policy is to keep the system from being overwhelmed. Um, and I mean, to be fair, there's, there's a worry about that. You know, if we do have exponential growth um, in our cases, at some point you get to the stage where there's no room in the ICU for not only more COVID patients, but just for run-of-the-mill, you know, post-operative ICU patients or trauma victims. Um, and, and so I can see where that is an element of it. But, but the problem with only focusing on hospitalizations and, and, and hospital capacity is that the reality is that every single sick person is a sick person. And so if we're only using that as our metric for determining success, then every preventable illness um, that occurs, every preventable death is, is, is tragic. And so, um, yeah, I, I sure wish that we had taken the time to focus more on preventing the preventable tragedies. Right. And, you know, I mean, there there was that hope. And, and for a while we were seeing it, and, and maybe to some extent we still are, that by, you know, targeting vaccines at vulnerable segments of the population, the elderly, et cetera, 
that that would help uh, reduce uh, the number of hospitalizations and severe outcomes this disease poses because there are segments of the population that are more at risk. But obviously, we, we've seen that decline stop and things have been going in, in the wrong direction. So why yeah. have things changed? I mean, I, I think it's pretty clear that it's the variant. Um, both the B117 variant and the P1 variant, which are now... Um, you know, running around in our community uh, have uh, an increased risk of causing severe illness in the younger population, uh, in particular, like middle age, you know, from the 30s to the 50s. And so this group has not been vaccinated, and yet um, we can expect more of them to, to end up in in predominantly the ICU, I think one of the fascinating things with the numbers you just spouted off there was that the numbers of actual inpatients have not been rising. It's really exclusively the intensive care patients that have been rising. So it's almost like when people are getting sick, they're just getting so sick, they're popping straight into the, to the intensive care units, um, bypassing the inpatient wards. Right, and, and that tends to represent not, not a short stay in hospital. That, you know, again, we, we see the statistics, but what does it mean then when, when you've got a patient who, who requires intensive care, who requires admission to the ICU? Yeah, so the intensive care unit is not a very fun place to be. Um, you don't want to be there. Um, the reason why people do go there is because if we can get people through the most severe aspect of their illness, you know, if you're young and healthy, you're going to come back on the other side alive and, and back to, to semi-functional. Um, not everybody comes out of the ICU back to their, their normal level of, of, uh, of fitness. Um, there, you know, there's lots of trauma that goes along with being in the ICU. You're sedated a lot of the time. And it's painful. Um, there is uh, elements of delirium that, that, that go through that. Um, but we... You know, patients will suffer through those indignities so that they can, at the other at the other end, end up uh, uh, alive and well. Um, and and one of the things that's unique about COVID is that you know the, the majority of ICU stays aren't particularly long, but a typical ICU stay for a COVID patient is two to three weeks, which is an awful lot of long time to be in that kind of situation. Right. And I mean, obviously, that's that speaks to to the capacity of the system, both in terms of the resources that are used for a prolonged period of time and and, and just how the system has to deal with with COVID patients. And especially when you got a potentially more transmissible variant, you obviously don't want that spreading throughout NER. So how does that affect then how you, how you deal with these patients? Yeah, um, well, you know, if, when, it, when somebody comes into the emergency room, the first thing that I do as a physician is determine um, how sick they are. And I think the most accurate measure for, you know, if you're going home, you're coming to the hospital, is their oxygen status. And so we have these monitors called oxygen uh, saturation monitors that let us know how well the heart and lungs are functioning to pump oxygen through the body. And we want it to be a, a, a good number over 90%. Once it starts getting below 90%, that person needs supplemental oxygen and therefore needs to be in the hospital. Um, there are other elements to this disease too. You know, it can cause clotting problems, can cause, can cause shock. And so we keep an eye out for those uh, aspects of things. Um, but, and I haven't seen a, 
you know, a huge number of COVID patients over the last year. But when I have, at least from an emergency perspective, they tend to be presenting from a respiratory failure perspective. So I, I mentioned earlier today, I mean, just, you know, the news over the last four or five days has been, you know, rather sobering. I feel like my, my optimism's taken a, a bit of a pounding here. I mean, in a longer term, you know, we're, we're ramping up the vaccines. We, we know we have good vaccines, but I, I think we got some some difficult weeks ahead. So the perspective from from the front lines, Joe, I mean, how are you feeling about it all? Uh, well, yeah, no, I know I, I share your, your pessimism at this point. Um, I think there was this um maybe too hopeful feeling that in this uh time of vaccines that uh, if we only managed to vaccinate fast enough we could get ahead of the variants and and not have to deal with the third wave um you know vaccinate the most vulnerable and nobody is going to get sick and and um, i think we overestimated the power of vaccines and underestimated the power of the variants um so when you think about it now, I think, what are we at, 12%, 13% maybe of, uh, of Albertans who have been vaccinated, that still leaves like around 4 million vulnerable Albertans. That's a, that's a lot of vulnerable Albertans. And these vaccines aren't um, as discriminatory when it comes to age and, and comorbidities when it comes to who they're going to make sick. It's a little bit more of a crapshoot now. And so um, we... We are, 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 you know, this proverbial race between the vaccines and the variants, um, we're, we're losing. Um, and, and I think uh, it's also worth pointing out that even once people are vaccinated, we still need to have smart COVID mitigation policy in place because the vaccines were never going to be a standalone fix for this. They were always going to be an element to this. And until we have like 90% of the population vaccinated, and no new variants that are resistant to vaccines, we're going to still need to be, you know, playing the smart. And we haven't been playing very yeah. smart to this point. We'll find out later today whether our strategy is uh, going to change. So we'll leave it there for now. Dr. Vipon, appreciate your insight on all this. And uh, thanks for making some time for us here today. Thanks for having me on. All right, appreciate that. That's uh, Dr. Joe Vipond, uh, ER physician uh, here in Calgary, and his thoughts on you know, what we're seeing in the hospitals and uh, why there's some concern at this point. So 3.30 today, as mentioned, the Premier, the Chief Medical Officer of Health, will be providing an update, and we'll see if anything is uh, going to change here in Alberta. We're right after this. Off the top in this hour, though, a focus on the Canada-U.S. trading relationship, and it was a tumultuous uh, four years. Uh, under the previous presidents, with uh, NAFTA being reopened, uh, tariffs being imposed. It, like I say, it was it was tumultuous. But have we exchanged one form of protectionism for another? Certainly our prime minister, this new president, seemed to have a good relationship, but uh, th- there is still a, a streak of protectionism uh, in Washington, D.C. Uh, the U.S. president has announced his massive infrastructure plan, which is kind of an infrastructure slash climate plan, but this is $2 trillion. This is huge. But it includes these Buy American provisions. So it's something Canada's keeping a close eye on. But uh, again, I mean, this kind of protectionism, I, I don't think we should support it if our governments do it. Or maybe Americans uh, should have reason to be concerned about their government doing it. At least that's the position uh, of our next guest. Uh, you can read more, by the way, at uh, Cato.org. 
Uh, but joining us uh, on the line this afternoon to talk more about uh, all of this, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, uh, Scott Linsicum. He is uh, with the Cato Institute. You can read his thoughts, uh, as mentioned, at uh, Cato.org. He's a senior fellow of economic studies. Scott, great to have you with us here this afternoon. Welcome to the program. Oh, great to be here. Thanks for having me. You know, and, and look, and we've we've spoke before about uh, you know some of the the protectionism uh, of the the last four years. How much has has actually changed, and how much is is staying the same as uh, we you know the U.S. goes from one president to another here? Right. I mean, so far uh, there hasn't been a lot of change. Um, you know, we've seen the Biden administration uh, has removed a few, uh, or at least suspended a few tariffs um, related to the dispute with the European Union over uh, mm-hmm. civil aircraft. Um, and we've seen uh, them do a little bit at the World Trade Organization. But overall, um, almost all of the Trump tariffs that were in place uh, in December and January of this year are still in place today, um, including uh, those on steel and aluminum imports, including uh, those on uh, Canadian lumber, of course, um, and then all of the, the products from China. And, and at the same time, the rhetoric has remained pretty nationalist. Um, and you mentioned by American, uh, President Biden very early uh, in his tenure uh, signed an executive order to tighten by American rules. And just yesterday in announcing his uh, infrastructure package um, was promising very tight enforcement of uh, an application of by American rules. To that, um, to that bill, which, as you mentioned, really is just a, a form of protectionism um, as U.S. companies um, that are going to contract with the federal government for this work will be required to use American um, materials. Um, and that, that can have significant implications for Canadian companies, given how intertwined our supply chains are. Right. And, and look, I mean, it's good politics. I, I get it. And, and certainly coming yeah. out of a pandemic, uh, that, that that's going to play well. And I'm sure it would play well here if, you know, our prime minister took a similar approach. But, yeah. you know, aside from, you know, the, the feel good idea of, you know, support American <laughs> jobs, support Canadian jobs, what, what gets left yeah. out of the conversation? Yeah, two big things. First is that it's very bad economics. Um, not only does Dubai American rules simply raise the cost of federal projects, um, you know, essentially getting less bang for our taxpayer buck. Um, but they also um, really don't uh, consider uh, multinational supply chains. And what I mean by that is, you know, the last time the United States government did a lot of this, Biden was in charge as vice president in, in the 2009 stimulus package. Um, it turns out that they really had difficulty finding goods that didn't have Canadian content in them, for example. And it led to um, a lot of delays with projects. It led to the cancellation of projects. It even led to uh, companies having to rip out some Canadian pipe from projects that had already been underway so that they could qualify for the new funding, which had these Buy American mandates. So really bad economics. Um, It's also, though, uh, bad foreign policy and bad trade policy more broadly, because inevitably... Uh, protectionism here leads to protectionism abroad as countries retaliate. And U.S. companies, particularly construction companies, um, but also American manufacturers, are very active in foreign procurement markets, so in bidding for, really for, for foreign uh, government contracts. Uh, that includes, you know, includes in Canada but a lot of other countries. So as countries retaliate, our uh, American companies will lose out on that business as well. 
Um, so it really is a double whammy. Um, our importers get hit, our contracts and projects get hit, and then our exporters get hit as well. Do taxpayers get hit too? I mean, does this ultimately end up right. driving up the cost of, of these kinds of programs? Exactly. Yeah, it gets, you get less bang for your buck. And, and you know, we have this really fantastic real-world example of um, of <laughs> when, when it really, really matters, these Buy American mandates disappear because um, all of the United States government's vaccine contracts for uh, the Pfizer uh, and Moderna vaccines and the J&J vaccine as well lack any sort of Buy American language. Um, and in fact, you know, just yesterday we, we saw that uh, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine was having some problems at the, the Baltimore, Maryland facility, but that's okay because we're importing vaccines, uh, J&J vaccines, from the Netherlands. And, and so it's, again, really a perfect real-world example of the problems. I mean, imagine if we had a Buy American mandate for those J&J vaccines. Well, all of a sudden, uh, we would be cut off from those imported supplies. And from which, you know, meaning lives are on the line. And so it really, I think, puts a, puts, it, it sharpens, I think, the criticism of Buy American rules, showing how they not only impose taxpayer costs, but slow projects down and at the end of the day can, can really uh, cause even, even bigger problems. Yeah, and it's interesting you mention that. I think, you know, the, <laughs> vaccine nationalism is is really straining, I, I think, you know, globalization. And I do worry about the impacts, you know, going forward because, you know, yep. Canada's now, we're having a big conversation about how do we, you know, foster more domestic vaccine production and, um, you know, right. international supply chains are, are kind of out of whack. We, you know, we're getting Pfizer vaccines from, from Belgium and there's a plant, you know, in Kalamazoo, Michigan, a few hundred miles from the right. border. So it's, it's, it's a tricky one, isn't it? It is. And, you know, some of this, I will say, is, is, not, is less about nationalism and more about uh, contracts. And, and so, you know, that makes things very difficult. So if a pharmaceutical producer has already contracted for, to deliver a set amount of supply, um, that's not exactly what we would, uh, we would call protectionism. But on the other hand, if, uh, those, uh, if those same producers have contracted with, with uh, governments, in, you know, in other governments, um, and their actual restrictions on export, um, that, you know, you're right. It, it leads to a potential um, chin reaction where other governments retaliate. And the next thing you know, everybody's cut off. And the last thing you want to do is, at, is, try, is do things that diminish global capacity and global supply. And particularly for countries that aren't lucky enough to have massive resources and massive manufacturing bases, um, and, you know, like poor developing countries, for example. Um, and it really, the best thing we can do is everything in our power to maximize total global supply. Um, and, you know, which these vaccine nationalists uh, and this protectionism uh, curtails. Right, much more is mentioned at Cato.org. Scott, let's come appreciate your insight on all this. Thanks for making some time for us here today. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. All the best. Uh, that is uh, Scott Lincecum with the Cato Institute in Washington, D.C. He's a, a senior fellow of economic studies. So some interesting insight on, on why this kind of protectionism might be good politics, but it's, it's bad economics. So, I, I, you know, I think on, on that, at least specifically these Buy American provisions, we can agree. Absolutely. The U.S. president should not be doing that. But how would we feel if it were being done here? So I think the idea of buy Canadian or buy Albertan 
we'd feel a lot differently about it. But I think the same points still apply. You know, global trade is a good thing. Free trade between countries is a good thing. Having integrated supply chains like we have between the U.S. and Canada is a good thing. And, and I, I think we've learned the hard way that, you know, when the U.S. really puts its foot down in a protectionist way, it's, it's not a good thing. So when we went through all the uncertainty around NAFTA, that was not good. When we had the tariffs imposed, that was not good. And like Scott said, I mean, you know, and maybe in a way, the Democrats have traditionally been the more protectionist of the two parties in the U.S. You know, the last president may be a bit of an exception in that sense, but we're still seeing some of that. So a lot of what was in place is still in place. We're seeing it manifested now in these Buy American provisions. So look, ultimately, the good news is that because of the integration between our two countries, you know, the stimulus that, that gets the economy going in the U.S. is going to have a spillover effect, and Canada is going to benefit. But yes, the idea that, you know, we're going to be shut out or Canadian companies are going to be negatively impacted, it is something to be concerned about. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.